So if I asked you, who is the bravest, most courageous person in the Bible? You would probably say King David. Now, I don't know. You, there's a lot of them to choose from, thankfully. He's got to be at least in the top three, though. He'd have to be in your top three, I'm sure. This is the guy who, who defeated Goliath, right? What more proof would we need? And yet, uh, if you're familiar with David's life, there's, there's at least one story in David's life that doesn't get quite as much attention, certainly not as much as the Goliath story, and yet uh, very fascinating. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David, this is the, the, the period of his life where he's on the run from the murderously jealous King Saul. And David flees to the land of the Philistines. He goes to a place called Gath, where Achish was the king. Now, that did not prove to be the best decision. If you remember, David killed the Philistines' main guy. He kills Goliath, and then he goes into their territory. Interestingly enough, David was carrying Goliath's sword when he went into the land of the Philistines. So, of course, they recognize him, and he realizes he's in trouble. So what does David, the mighty warrior, do? He pretends to be insane. He scribbles a bunch of nonsense all over the walls. He drools down his beard. Which, incidentally, y'all, when we, if you picture King David, you probably picture the statue that Michelangelo made, where he's clean-shaven. He had a beard. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if that interests you. Uh, he didn't look like the statue. He had a beard, like, like all uh, Jewish men. Um, he drools down his beard. He plays a part. And King Akish, when they bring David in front of him, he says, why is this madman in my presence? And he sends him away. And so David escapes through this little clever ruse and finds his way to safety again. You know, smart thinking on his part, but not exactly something David would put on his greatest hits album. Okay? He defeated Goliath and the Philistines, and then he comes back and pretends to be insane and, you know, escapes very cleverly. Uh, frankly, a little bit humiliating, though, Right? Then David sneaks down into a cave in a place called Adullam, where 400 men come to join him to make him their captain. And the scripture says about this group of men that they were distressed, in debt, and discontented. So David is now captain over these, you know, kind of cast off, freeloading kind of guys, this ragtag group of people who are following a fugitive. That's the situation as they hide out in this cave. Now, I'm telling that story because it was from this cave in Agilom that David wrote one of his most famous psalms. It's Psalm 34. It's a psalm of praise for deliverance and victory, even in the midst of some very strange and adverse circumstances. It's a song of thanksgiving. And since we're right on the heels of the Thanksgiving holiday, it's important for us to establish what we mean, what Christians mean, when we use the word thanksgiving, we're not talking about a day on the calendar so much, but a posture of the heart, a way of life for those who know the Lord. And one thing that we're going to see in this psalm is that a thankful heart can be related to our circumstances, but should not be dependent on our circumstances. A thankful heart transcends anything we face in this life as it did for King David. 
And so look with me at Psalm 34. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 in totality here. Let's start with verse 1 this morning. The words of David as he writes from this cave. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Now, let's revisit the context here for just a second. David was God's chosen man to be the rightful king over Israel. David had served King Saul very faithfully. Saul was not mad at anything David had actually done that was malicious or sinful. No, David had only blessed the king to that point. David had rescued Israel from defeat and enslavement to the Philistines. His track record was excellent. And yet, here he is on the run because Saul just couldn't handle it. Saul didn't like the idea of being displaced. And so he wanted David dead. Now he's sequestered in this cave because he's, he's got more enemies than he bargained for. He's just narrowly escaped the vengeance of the Philistines here. There's another place, we just read it at the beginning, Psalm 56, where David is reflecting on this very moment in time. And he says, my foes have trampled upon me all day long. He's in a bad spot. Now try to imagine for you, for me, how despondent we might feel if we were in a position anything like this. Y'all, I've had some tough times. I've never been through anything like this. I've never, I've never run for my life. And so as David faces this just insurmountable difficulty, sitting in this dark cave, he writes these words, I will bless the Lord at all times, and His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Y'all, if we were to try to explain those words from the circumstances, we would never compute. It would never make any sense to us. But we see the truth, and if you're familiar with David's life, then you know this to be true, that David's commitment to thanks and praise predated his circumstances. His heart here had already long been established. To say, I will bless the Lord at all times, that was the settled posture of his life, irrespective of circumstances. We, we made mention of this a minute ago. It's such a dominant story in David's life, how he defeated Goliath. How did David defeat Goliath? You remember this. You say, well, he had a sling, and he had some stones. Well, yeah, but no. Remember how Israel, all of Israel was trembling in fear at at the prospect of facing this giant, and scrawny David, who didn't even belong to the army. Y'all remember the story. David's father sent him to check on his brothers and to deliver cheese. That's why he was there. Well, he shows up, and he volunteers to take Goliath on. And remember what David says to Goliath there in the valley when they approach each other for battle. David says, you come against me with sword and spear but I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, and the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And he did. Did David decide to start trusting God 
when he got down on the field of battle? No. It was his trust in the Lord that brought him into the battle. It was already present. And so now on the flip side of this, in Psalm 34, David's not suddenly going to lose trust in God when things turn drastically south for him. He's not in a moment of personal victory right now. Things have gone terribly for him, but the posture of his heart has already been established. In fact, y'all, the language that he uses in that first verse, I will bless the Lord, I will praise the Lord, that's the language of joy. That's gladness. These are not the words of a person despairing over his circumstances, but a person whose heart is full even when everything else seems to have emptied out. Now that brings up the question, how does a person become like that? Because I trust that all of us want to be like that, impervious to the ups and downs of life, that I would always be joyful, always be trusting, and always have praise in my mouth. I want to be like that. How do you become that kind of person? Well, verse 2 actually gives us, I think, a very important clue. In verse 2, David says, My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. David is saying that at the very deepest level, his trust and his confidence are in the Lord. So his boast is not in himself, but in God. And y'all, that's, that is more radical than we probably realize. It's human nature to look to ourselves for something to boast in, to have my sense of confidence, my sense of belonging, the justification for my life has got to be found in something that I am, something that I do, right? And especially in David's case, he's, he is the rightful king of Israel. He's God's chosen one. He's the champion of Israel's army. He's already proven his worth to everybody. David, at least at the, you know, at the horizontal level here, he's got every reason to boast in himself. Everybody thinks he's great. And besides that, y'all, in the ancient world, we, we, don't, wouldn't, we wouldn't know this, apart from just peering into the, uh, the, the history here, but back then, humility was not a virtue the way it is now. We, we don't realize this, perhaps, but everybody thinks humility is great now only because of Jesus. Jesus introduced humility to the world and made it a virtue. That's why we all think it's so great. But back then, humility was only reserved for the poor and the lowly. It was, it was an insult. It was not something to feel good about. Kings weren't supposed to be humble. But here David is embracing humility. He's bragging, boasting on God alone, not himself. And he says, the humble will hear it, and they will rejoice. Now, here's the correlation. And this is generally true, but it's especially true according to the Scripture. Grateful people are humble people. And humble people are grateful. And I just want to dig in this for a second together. Um, what does it mean to be humble? David uses that word. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Humility at least begins with a recognition of my own weakness and need. My sin and my ignorance. 
my fears and my insecurities, my failures and my sufferings. It's being in touch with what we really are. Pride is a projection of what we wish we were or what we think others want us to be. Humility is being in touch with what we actually are. Not so that we would be beaten down and miserable and worthless feeling. That's not humility. But it's being in touch with reality so that we might recognize ourselves in right relationship with God. A humble person who knows what I really am, I know I'm weak, and therefore I must look beyond myself for strength which I don't possess. That's humility. You know you are sinful, and therefore you seek forgiveness and redemption outside of yourself. If you're in touch with your own suffering, suffering oftentimes creates in us a right kind of humility, because it's in our suffering that we seek a lasting hope beyond our circumstances. Y'all, these are things that we really discover only in relationship with Jesus. And so this is why David says he's going to praise the Lord and the humble will hear God's praises and rejoice. Y'all, here's the bottom line. If we know what we really are and we know what we really deserve, then we will be utterly amazed at how God treats us instead. How He loves us and cares for us how He forgives and redeems us, how He provides and protects, how He strengthens and rescues us. We'll be amazed at how God treats a person like me who's in touch with reality. This is why a humble person before God is a grateful person. Because I know, you know, we are not entitled to any of God's mercy and grace, and yet He pours it out upon us in such abundance, in freeness, and in love for those who could never do it for themselves. That's why we say, and I think it's right to say, that a humble person is a grateful person. Those are twin attributes. They're meant to go together. Y'all, a proud person, by contrast, always feels entitled entitled to others' respect, entitled to better circumstances. I always feel like God owes me better than what I'm getting. But a humble person sees everything as an undeserved gift. And even when life turns sour for us, we don't deserve any better anyway. And besides that, right there in the midst of that bitterness, we still have the Lord who loves us and cares for us. In humility... A person can truly be happy in the Lord, even when things fall apart. That's why David is the example here of a person who is able to praise the Lord, not because he's in denial, but because he has the most precious thing. He's got the Lord, even in the face of the darkness that surrounds him. Now, is there anybody else in the Bible like that? Again, we could pick a host of people who embody this. I'm always drawn to the Apostle Paul, especially as a New Testament example. Y'all, if you know Paul's story, prior to his coming to faith, Paul was a deeply prideful person. He was full of himself, and for good reason. He was a, a very high achiever in religious terms. 
Well, then Jesus takes hold of him. And Paul, when he becomes a follower of Jesus, he encounters suffering and loss beyond his wildest imagination, stuff that we couldn't even begin to imagine for ourselves. Paul encountered it all. And yet there's a place in 2 Corinthians where Paul faces this really head-on, and he reflects on it. He mentions one specific, very major struggle in his life that was so debilitating for him that he pleaded with God that God would please take it away. And the Lord said no. God did not take it. He left it on Paul and his life. And Jesus, speaking to Paul, said, My power is perfected in weakness. That was his answer. My grace will be sufficient for you, Paul. Now, proud Paul would have clapped back on the Lord at this point and said, hey, I don't deserve this. You know how long I've served you. You know how, you know how hard I've worked for you, and this is the thanks I get. But what Paul says instead, what David says instead, is entirely different. This is how Paul responds. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, taking the circumstances, if that's our, our lens that we see life, we'll never compute. This, never, this, does, this won't make any sense. How in the world can Paul speak of his weakness, his suffering, with gladness and contentment? Only because he has Jesus. He says, the power of Christ is most present, most powerful and abundant in me when I am most empty and most needy. And we say, that doesn't make any sense. And we're right. This makes no sense. In any human computation, it makes no sense at all. It doesn't make any more sense than the psalm that David's writing as he hides in the cave, right? But this is the pure hope and joy and life that comes in relationship with God. It's something that is not of this world. It's something divine that we must be given in order to experience and stand upon. And y'all, if we're just frank about the, the, the nature of, of this life and the outcomes, there's no lasting strength or hope or happiness in human circumstances anyway. If we live long enough to see it for ourselves, we'll know it. The sad thing is, for a lot of us, for a lot of people, we don't know what the alternative is or we're not willing to accept it, and so we keep going back to the same well over and again, even though it dries up time and again on us. We don't have an alternative to reach for because we don't know this joy, this trust, this worship. We don't know the Lord. That's why the Scripture tells us that only in God's presence is there fullness of joy. Only in God's hand, David says in Psalm 16, only in your right hand are there pleasures forever. David understood this. Paul understood it. And we're meant to as well.
So how is it that David is able to bless and praise and boast like this? It's because his delight is not rooted in his circumstances, but in the person of God. Now, I said this a minute ago. That doesn't mean that David is in denial of his circumstances. No, he gives thanks for those too, oddly enough. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried... And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Now, we just saw it twice, verses 4 and 6. David is reflecting on his escape from the Philistines. He says, I sought the Lord, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me. Now, wait a minute. We talked about this story, 1 Samuel 21. I thought David escaped the Philistines through his own deceitful cleverness. Isn't he the one who concocted the plan to drool all over himself and to be released from captivity? He outsmarted those guys. Isn't that why he got freed? Well, maybe. David doesn't view it that way. And he ought to know, right? David is the one reflecting on his own story here, and he doesn't view the circumstances that way In the least, he doesn't give himself the credit here. He says, God delivered me. And y'all, this is a much bigger uh, doctrine than I'm going to give the time for here, but here's David believed what the Bible teaches, that God really does ultimately govern all things, the seen and the unseen. David knows that he could have only escaped his enemies if God provided the means of escape, if God provided a way, regardless of how the specific circumstances uh, uh, lined up, David could have only escaped if God was with him and for him. In the same way that David could have only defeated Goliath, irrespective of the materials he used. There was nothing magical about the sling and the stones. David knew it was the hand of the Lord that would prevail. That's the only hope he had. And so that's what David means. You see it in verse 7 when he says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. He's speaking of a reality that we cannot see, and yet David in his own life experienced it time and time again, the Lord's provision and protection and rescue, the victory that God alone can give for those who trust him. David says you can count on it. The details change. It doesn't always work out how we plan or even pray for. But God ultimately governs this world, and He's the one who delivered me. So think about this now. We don't depend on happy circumstances in order to thank and praise God, but it's not wrong to thank God for happy and good circumstances. It's not wrong to pray for those things. It's not wrong for us to pray that God would bless us in real time with tangible grace. Because certainly when those good times come, God gets the praise for that too. Because we know He's behind it. We know He governs and holds all things together. We know that He loves us and He's for us. David understood that. I will thank you in the darkness of this cave. My circumstances will not prevent it. 
and I will thank you for your deliverance and kindness because I know you're behind it all. I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. And now look again at verse 5. Y'all, I'm stuck on this verse. Verse 5. They looked to Him and were radiant. And their faces will never be ashamed. I love the image David paints for us there. He's speaking of us, God's people. Now it's interesting though that David is talking about radiance, light, from the darkness of a cave. He's talking about living unashamed, even as he's hiding out in apparent shame and humiliation. So how do we bring those two ideas together? How can we be radiant in the darkness of life? How can we be unashamed when there's so much perhaps in our own sin or circumstances that would cause us shame? And y'all, if you'll forgive me for a moment, I'm going to pan way out for us, okay, beyond this psalm, to the greater story of Scripture. How is it that we look to God and find radiance for ourselves? Our faces shine. How is it that when we look to the Lord, we never fall back into shame? The ultimate answer, the only true and lasting eternal answer to that question comes to us at the cross of Christ. Y'all think about this. When we read the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell us of the same event, the crucifixion, the crux of history, there is a profound emphasis in that account of darkness and shame. You remember how when Jesus died, the whole world was covered in darkness for a time? That there was nothing more shameful than to be crucified as a criminal on a Roman cross as Jesus was spit on and mocked and crowned as a joke. There's never been a worse circumstance in all the world. There's never been a greater injustice. There's never been an act of evil so shameful as what Jesus experienced on the cross. And yet, that's exactly how God designed it to be. Only by sending the light of the world, Jesus Christ, into the darkness could God rescue us out of our sins and bring us into the light. Only if Jesus willingly suffered for our shame, our sin, our evil, could He then conquer those things through His death and His resurrection. It's Jesus who must overcome our darkness so that we might walk in the light. It's Jesus who must suffer our shame so that we might trust in Him and never be ashamed again. He's the one who entered in to the deepest darkness, who took upon the greatest shame, so that now those who look to Him, the risen Christ, might be radiant. We reflect a light now that we cannot produce within ourselves, and yet it's ours, because He is ours. We radiate because we belong to Christ, and He is the light of the world. And there is never another day, never another moment now for us of shame, not now or for all eternity, where we will grovel in the presence of God, no, because He has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. We are now His sons and daughters because of Jesus. He endured the shame for the joy set before Him that He might bring us into His eternal presence.
Isn't that good news? That brings us now to the appeal here. The last verse we're going to look at, verse 8. David says to us, all those who are listening in now on this wonderful song, he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. One of the great invitations in all the Bible. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the person who takes refuge, who puts all their trust in Him. Y'all, this is, this is an invitation to experience and enjoy the goodness of God personally. Don't take my word for it that honey is sweet. Taste it for yourself and enjoy it. Seek the Lord, David says, and you shall not be in want of any good now let's recall one more time where David is. He's writing these words as he hides out in a cave. He's running for his life. David is not writing this psalm from a terrace overlooking the sea. He's writing it from a place of fear and humiliation and threat. So how in the world does he come to such delight in the midst of such adversity? It's because his delight is in the Lord. It's a deep down, settled faith that no circumstance can shake because He Himself has tasted. He has come to see the goodness of God. And so y'all, right here, as we close, there is a, a, what I believe is, a, is one of the most important biblical truths, especially for people in our just present moment here, to recognize and to embrace if your ultimate good, if the thing you want most in life, the thing that would make you happiest, is a circumstance, if the thing that would bring you greatest joy is something merely tangible and transient, whether it is wealth or romance or success or approval or just plain ease and comfort of circumstances, Whatever it is, if that's your number one goal, that's the thing that would make me truly happy. You will always live disillusioned. And you'll be disillusioned with God. Because the reality is, bad things do happen. And even if we are able to kind of cushion ourselves from the very worst of things, we're, I hope we've lived long enough, most of us, to know this, that comfort of any kind never really lasts. Even money and love and success in abundance never actually satisfy us at the deepest level. They can't. They're not meant to. They weren't created for that. If we're willing to stare reality in the face, we know it's all fleeting. And besides that, y'all, the truth is, none of the things I just mentioned are bad, by the way. With a right perspective, a humble person who sees reality, we actually take those things not as negative or sinful, but as good. Because they're gifts from God, right? God actually cares about us and gives us things to enjoy. More than we can ever measure. Certainly more than we deserve. Those things aren't bad. They're just not ultimate. And therefore, they can't be our ultimate prize, our ultimate good. Only God can do that. That's what David understood. That's why David, in the worst of times, could bless the Lord and call Him sweet. Because David knew, Paul knew, certainly Jesus knew, that there's nothing in this world God can give you better 
than God himself. There's nothing better than relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. No greater gift, no greater source of delight. That's why this invitation stands still today. David wrote it, oh, 3,000 years ago, maybe. And it's still as relevant and precious to us as it ever was. Whether you're in a palace or a cave or anywhere in between, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the person whose trust is in Him. No matter what, He is good. And we know it for a fact because we belong to a Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us, who gave Himself for us, who embraced the darkness and the shame that we deserved and came out alive again so that we might have life in His name. Y'all, can I invite us in the same way that David does, that we might taste and see and experience the greatness of a God who loves us like this. Y'all, we're going to pray and we're going to sing. And even as we do that, uh, we'll have uh, our pastors, Evan and Aaron, will be here to receive you. If you want to step back to the back of the room where the doors are on either side, uh, you can take them by the hand and ask for prayer. Let them, let them know what is burdening your own heart or let them know, hey, I want to know what it is to be a Christian, to experience life like the Bible just told us about. Um, we would love the opportunity to pray with you and encourage you in whatever your next step might be. Um, but for all of us, let's respond, let's taste, let's see, let's embrace the goodness of God who has so loved us that he would send us his son the way he has. Would you pray with me? Lord, let this be for us such an, a, just a marvelous truth. Let us bask in it, Father. That as we look to you, we would be radiant because we are reflecting a light beyond our comprehension, the light of divine love, the light of Jesus Christ. Lord, if we are, if the most natural thing in the world, Father, if we are prone to estimate life based on our circumstances, if we're prone to think of your love and measure it based on circumstances, that when things are bad, we just don't see you. We don't, we don't recognize that you care. We don't feel your nearness. Lord, all of that is so natural to us. If, like David, we can acknowledge that we're afraid, we're hard-pressed, we're hurting. Father, that none, none of that is out of bounds this morning. Father, you can shoulder all of it. I pray that we would be honest with you today. And, Father, that we would recognize... In our, in our fears, in our insecurities, in our sufferings, whatever it may be, that, Lord, you, you care so dearly for us that you were willing to take on all darkness and suffering and shame and rejection for us. So that, Lord, you might overcome this world by the light of your Son, Jesus so that you might grant us, Lord, hope in, in place of shame and light in place of darkness, that you might grant us eternal life, Lord, in place of the fleeting things that are destined to die with this world. I pray, Father, that we would see you in a new light this morning.
that we would, as David says, we would taste and see. That in a a very real way, we would experience together the awesomeness of your presence and your love as something very real, Father. Because you really love us. And Father, you treat us not as slaves, not even as employees. We are your children by faith in Jesus Christ. And so thank you, Lord, for the way you love us. Let us, I pray, feel, taste, see, experience the depth of this love as we look to Jesus and his great light this morning. We pray let it be so in his name. Amen.